The following podcast contains explicit language. He has a lot of great ideas. He's not a stupid man. He's worth $9 billion. I feel like our country is going down the drain. He's actually a very intelligent man who cares deeply about America. There is no question that this is the person who will go to Washington, D.C. and be able to absolutely turn the place around. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who says he can't understand the lack of retribution for people who criticize his success, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So Trump spent the weekend insulting Hillary Clinton as unhinged, unbalanced, unstable, not all there, dangerous, and unfit to be president. Talk about the pot calling the kettle black. Trump basically took every accusation that's been leveled at him over the past 10 days and said, I know you are, but what am I? But Trump also settled down a bit. He walked back his pointed non-endorsements of Paul Ryan and John McCain. And today, he gave an actual speech in Detroit about his economic policy or what he wants to pass for an economic policy. In many ways, it was a pretty conventional pitch to the Republican moneyed class. Trump proposed a moratorium on all new regulations, eliminating the estate tax, lowering personal tax rates, though by less than he said he would during the primaries, and slashing business taxes. Then he proposed what sounded like a huge new child care tax deduction to go with his promise to massively increase infrastructure spending. He promised details on all of that sometime in the future. But what was most notable about the speech was what wasn't in it. Trump barely touched on immigration, and he didn't even mention the wall. He didn't call Hillary anything worse than a candidate of the past. It was, dare I say it, the kind of speech he'd be giving more of if he actually wanted to win. To discuss whether this represents an about-face, a course correction, or simply a day off for Donald Trump, I'll be speaking to Annie Lowry of New York Magazine. But first, let's do the tweets. Crooked Hillary said loudly and for the world to see that she short-circuited when answering a question on her emails. Very dangerous. Anybody whose mind short-circuits is not fit to be a president. Look up the word brainwashed. Heading to New Hampshire, we'll be talking about Hillary saying her brain short-circuited and other things. I am not just running against crooked Hillary Clinton. I'm running against the very dishonest and totally biased media. But I will win. The media is going crazy. They totally distort so many things on purpose. Crimea, nuclear, the baby, and so much more. Very dishonest. Fox News is so much better and far more truthful than CNN, which is all negative. Guests are stacked for Crooked Hillary. I don't watch. Annie Lowry writes about politics and economic policy for New York Magazine. And before that, she wrote about all that for The New York Times. And back in the day, she did it for Slate. Annie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. 
So Donald Trump gave his big economic policy speech today. Those sound like weird words to say, but what were his actual policy proposals? A few things changed, uh, and we got some new proposals and a little bit more detail on old proposals. So, you know, he has said that he is putting forward this tax plan, which is the Ryan tax plan. So he's come close to the House Republicans on that. It's not material, like materially different than his tax plan, really. There's like three tax brackets instead of four. And he wants to reduce the pass-through rate, which would, he claim, help small businesses, but tax experts claim would help sort of like small law firms with very few, (laughs) very rich partners or like investment trusts. Uh, He wants to get rid of the estate tax entirely, which would be very beneficial for his kids. And then there's a bunch of other little, you know, smaller stuff. He said he's going to scrap and renegotiate NAFTA, which is – it's kind of funny because TPP actually renegotiates NAFTA. He also has this entirely vague plan for making all child care or perhaps the average child care spending deductible, which, you know, he kind of gestured would help working families. But it would only help families who do not take the standard deduction, which means it would help rich families. Uh, so that's that's it. It was – um, you know, it's like – it's uh, it's word it's a bunch of nonsense. <laughs> so, but the old, where the old policy was going to add a bazillion dollars to the deficit, this only adds a gazillion dollars. Yeah, a lot of money to the deficit. This is a giant, giant regressive tax cut, the types of which Republicans have been trying to pass for a really long time now. So he also announced a team of economic advisors, which was basically 15 white guy billionaires who were all named Steve. Yeah. He's not taking this diversity stuff too seriously when it comes to uh, policy advice. Yeah, no, this is not this is not like a murderer's row of top economic thinkers. What's kind of amazing about it is that you've had these kind of like establishmentarian Republicans, really like respected economists in their own right, uh, like the Glenn Hubbards of the world, that just really don't appear on this list. It's a bunch of businessmen. Why businessmen should be good at creating economic policy is an interesting question, right? Like we kind of believe this in this country that like Peter Thiel or like Eric Schmidt of Google or whoever else, you know, uh, Charles Koch, um, industrialist, should actually have thoughts about how to structure, for instance, you know, like tax credits for childcare. <laughs> um, like, like we believe that once you're rich, you're just smart about all of this stuff. But economic policy is like a lot of deep in the weeds stuff. And, you know, he just has nobody who comes even remotely close to being somebody who should be pontificating about this stuff. There's not a single uh, noted macroeconomic expert, uh, no real trade experts, no tax policy experts, no women and family experts. They're, these people are out there and they are not working for the Trump campaign. And yeah, it's five dudes named Steve, a bunch of, you know, kind of like rich capitalists. And you've seen the the kind of policy-focused Republicans who, you know, for instance, love Paul Ryan, if, even if they don't agree with him. And they're just like kind of a gawk at this. Right. Like Greg Mankiw put up on his blog that he, you know, people think that things can't get worse than they have been under the sort of Obama Clinton thing. And he thinks they'd be worse under Trump. And like, that's kind of amazing for Greg Mankiw to say. And I don't think he's wrong. So the the Republican foreign policy establishment has really kind of come out in force against Trump. I mean, there was a petition and 50 of them signed or a letter 50 of them signed today saying that he's incredibly dangerous. Have the Republican economic policy people done anything like that? Or is it just outliers here and there? 
They're starting to. And I certainly think that like, you know, like the reformicons that tend to be more policy focused have come out and said that he is a disaster. Um, and now I think that you're starting to see more public intellectuals come forward. I don't know that they've had the same sense of urgency, given that Donald Trump has indicated that he would like to use a nuclear weapon, right? Like maybe the economic policy stuff feels a little bit more benign. Maybe they haven't <laughs> felt motivated to go and, and, and say that they think that he's dangerous, but, but they do. They surely do, right? I'm not, like, sure. I'm not sure what the economic equivalent of a nuclear weapon is. I guess maybe the gold standard, but a lot of them support <laughs> that. So, <laughs> Yeah. But it's it's this kind of crazy thing where his trade policy would be really active. Like it could send us into a recession. It really could. He's promising to start a trade war. That stuff is really like economically disruptive. You know, and I guess it comes down to what Paul Ryan would pass knowing that it would get Trump's signature. And at least we have a little bit more policy clarity from Paul Ryan. But yeah, it would be it would be pretty bad. It would be a great time to be a really rich person, I suppose, except like your asset values. Who knows what's going to happen there? Yeah, if the economy craters, it's not really good for anybody. I mean, you know, a lower tax rate on on lower income is less is less after tax income. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think that any of them would, would prefer that. And so I think that like, you know, certainly a lot of business people are behind Hillary for this reason, right? Like business people, especially in multinational businesses, don't want giant trade wars, right? Like they they really don't. <laughs> but Annie, what do you think it means that he kind of settled down and gave a real speech? I mean, you're pointing to all of the ways in which it's still kind of crazy, but it was delivered in for Trump a fairly sane way. And this is after he spent the weekend saying that Hillary Clinton was crazy. And, you know, he he had one of the wildest 10-day rides of any presidential candidate ever before this. Mm-hmm. And then he shows up in Detroit and stands there and gives a non-insane seeming speech. So right. what, how do you read that? Did they have that intervention? I mean, how did they kind of bring him back to earth? Perhaps. And he showed a little bit of restraint, right? There were these dozen, there was, I think, 14 protesters that got dragged out and he was actually not hooting and hollering in the way that he normally does and sort of riling his crowd up. He didn't lead um, a chant of kill them, kill them. <laughs> not that I could hear, although it was it was hard. I don't know if you were there. Maybe the threats no. were clearer. But uh, there's this um, this Italian song that goes around on the internet every once in a while, and it's Italians saying stuff as if they imagine English sounds. And so it sounds just like American English, except it's total gibberish, and they're kind of like dancing. And that's how I felt about this speech. But it was so self-contradictory and so completely insane. It was like if you had a precocious eight-year-old who read the Wall Street Journal every morning and asked them to come up with an economic policy plan, they might come up with this. And so like (laughs) in terms of its own internal contradictions, right – Trump says he's going to scrap and renegotiate NAFTA, but TPP, which he hates, renegotiates NAFTA. That's one of the big things it does. Trump says he wants to go after China for infringing on our intellectual property, but the TPP goes after China and other countries for infringing on intellectual property. Uh, he says that like hedge fund people should pay more in tax, and then he has these policies which self-evidently would give like hedge fund owners a giant tax cut. He has this childcare plan to make care affordable for the middle class. But, you know, most lower income and middle income families cannot even access the policy because they take standard deductions. You know, it's just we're getting more detail and it's just 
garbage. It's just total garbage. And it's not like I'm a huge fan of Paul Ryan's policies, but they have like a, a clear diegetic universe that they exist <laughs> in, whereas Trump's just they right. just don't. And so I know that everybody it was funny. I was on CNN earlier and they're like, "Oh, we're getting more detail and this is the, you know, the the, you know, seminal policy speech that we've received." And it's like judging by the metrics that we use on any other candidate, this is just, you know, there's nothing to say about it because it's such garbage. Right. Ted Cruz's plan you could pass and it would be a really bad idea, but one could turn it into legislation that could be passed and signed and implemented. Right. Yeah. Not not so with this plan. Exactly. And means and ends somewhat align in like the Paul Ryan universe or even like the Rand Paul universe. Whereas this, he says one thing and then has these policies that would do something totally different. And and it's worth saying also that there is no way the math works on these. There's no way that he passes this and it's not a huge regressive tax cut that doesn't get paid for, you know. Um, And it's almost like we don't even stop to say that because it's such, you know, nonsense anyway. So Trump's got to be reading the same polls we are, and he's looking at, at a really big potential loss in November. And it seems he's been sort of laying pipe to blame it on the rigged system. That was one phrase right. he used even today again and again, the system's rigged, the system's rigged. So, I mean, what's the outside limit here? I mean, what if Trump really tanks, how badly do you think he could lose? So there was this, I think it was 538 came out with this analysis of these numbers that look like because Gary Johnson is pulling votes from Trump, there's some chance that South Carolina is in play for Clinton and Georgia. And it's like, oh, man, she's going to take the entire eastern seaboard. And then like, you know, that's say nothing of like Florida and Ohio. It looks like it could be really big. So there's this Monmouth poll that came out today that's that's showing 46-34. And Trump is winning over less than 80 percent of Republicans. Like, that's really pretty big. You know, and I would also say that the Clinton campaign is not treating this like they have some cake walked in November. They're treating it like a close race. They're being really aggressive. They're spending a ton of money. And so it's really hard for me to imagine what happens that messes this up for her, as long as she's a little bit conservative in the sense of not getting out over her skis. And as long as Trump remains Trump, right? You know, he kind of reined himself in today. But any times that he feels like he's, you know, like not winning the news cycle and not in the news, he tends to lash out. He's done that, you know, however many times now. And so I think he's just going to keep on saying insane stuff. And and I think the question is really how big the margin is. But it's looking like a historical blowout, basically. What's your over-under on the day Hillary unleashes the Colin Powell endorsement? Oh, man. I don't know that anybody is going to be won over. I feel like people have kind of made their minds up. Do you feel like there's there's an undecided pool Or do you think that people have sort of quietly made their mind up either to stay home because they don't want to vote for him or to to go ahead and support her because she's like an actual non-insane adult? I think it can swing further against him, both because people don't show up to vote for him and, you know, at some point the overwhelming irresponsibility of it has has an effect. But no, everyone thinks they've made their mind up, but his numbers can go down and his numbers can come back. And I guess that's the next question, Annie, is what, you know, what would it take for his numbers to rebound even to where they were – after the Republican convention, but before the Democratic one. So this is not informed by anything other than kind of like impulse. I feel like there might be some mean reversion. I would be shocked if it ended up being 46-34 on the day. You know, I would have expected a blowout in this country in the way that our system is set up. You know, if she won by six or seven percentage points, that would be really big. 
you know? And it's just, it's crazy to me, the states that she's putting in play. Even these states where you get a sense that a very Republican electorate just doesn't know what to do with him, right? So Utah, I think, is the most interesting example. Here you have these these very conservative folks. And, you know, so if there are more revelations about the Trump and Melania marriage, uh, gosh, it's crazy. it's crazy to think what could happen. I think how he does in the debates is also, you know, I know the pol- the poli sci suggests that those aren't such a big deal. And, and in fact, um, the convention might be a bigger deal than those. But but I think that those could matter. And as long as the bottom doesn't fall out on the economy and there's no major national security crisis, like, I think she looks really good. I mean, shockingly good. And we were talking a little bit earlier about how she could have been a weak candidate against other Republicans. And certainly it's it's hard to win for a party to win a third presidential term. But Trump is just such a bad candidate that, that she doesn't have to overcome very much or answer for very much. And back to the under for Trump, what do you think it would take for Republicans to really start abandoning him? And I'm not talking about the former NSC officials. I'm talking about Republican Senate candidates and RNC people, you know, for the party mm-hmm. to really bail. Because last week it felt to me for the first time like it could happen, maybe even was on the verge of happening. Uh, I certainly think that there are a lot of people that would like to do it and that really wish that they had treated this differently a couple months ago. I think it would rip the party apart and seem so undemocratic to take this away from him at this point. And so all of, you know, I have a lot of friends who work for Republican senators and some for Republican House members, and they all just seem resigned to let him lose and to figure things out after then. So it's really hard for me to see how anything other than that happens. And, you know, there's been some great reporting about down ballot candidates just running away from Trump and establishing their bona fides. But that's queasy and it's tough, right? Because, you know, if there are people who are being drawn to the polls to vote for Donald Trump, what do you do with a candidate who's then disavowing him? It's very uncomfortable for a lot of these Republicans who are running for office. And the Republicans who've come out most strongly against Trump, it's worth noting, are the ones who aren't running again. And it's it's totally fascinating. There's really interesting political chess going on on this. You know, uh, Barack Obama has repeatedly said that, that Republicans must disavow Trump because he's, you know, a racist, a sex. Exist as xenophobe and, you know, threatening to harm all American businesses, all of these other things. And that puts them in a real pickle because, like, once Obama says you must disavow him, right. <laughs> as a Republican, you can't. <laughs> and yeah, you're that. stuck. You're in locked in this horrific embrace with him. Was he playing a mind game there? He doesn't actually want them to bail on Trump because there, there's an outside risk that Trump would get dumped or leave the race and the Republicans could at the last minute replace him with a more viable candidate. My guess is that he knows that by him calling on them to repudiate Trump that they can't and that this is going to lead to an election that could be enormously damaging to the Republican Party. One where, you know, kind of this is probably not likely to happen, but it could happen where the House is in play. That's crazy. That's really crazy. If if we had this conversation six months ago, I would have told you it was impossible to think that the House was in play. And it's not to say that I think that it's going to happen, but like, wow. There's an outside chance. Yeah, there's some chance. Uh, I was going to say for the um, for the Republicans in, in tight races, they're in this impossible predicament. And what they seem to be trying to do is denounce everything Trump says, but still be technically allied with him so that they don't lose the Trump voters. But that's a that's a pretty that's a pretty small island to be standing on. Yeah. So can you imagine being a Wisconsin voter going to the polls to vote for both Paul Ryan and Donald Trump? <laughs> It's hilarious, right? There's some number of people that are going to go ahead and do that. And 
it's not like there are very many uh, Republicans on the Hill who are supporting Trump enthusiastically. I mean, like there's some of them, but but they're all kind of holding their noses and trying to make it about Hillary Clinton. But Trump just insists on making this campaign a referendum on him and not her. So for Hillary Clinton, the drill really is to get out of the way and let him shoot himself. Absolutely. If this becomes a campaign somehow about her and the money she's taken from Wall Street and Benghazi and Emailgate, I think she could be in a precarious position. And a smarter Republican like a Marco Rubio would have done precisely that. It would have been a referendum on her and he would have been seen as the sober person who's pushing responsible Republican policies that are going to you know, help America grow. But Donald Trump, because he's just such a carnival barker and such a narcissist <laughs> and such a moron. I mean, this is the thing is he's a, both a brilliant and a terrible politician, will not get out of his own way. He can't. He's, I think, actually incapable of doing it. He managed to do it for like 20 minutes today and everybody applauded him. But it's a matter of time before he goes and and does something like the Kizer Khan thing or, you know, I, I just I think that there's a lot more insanity to come. And it's really fun talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It was great to talk to you. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. Hey, thanks for all the comments you left on iTunes. We got a ton of five-star reviews, and it's really helping the show. Please, if you haven't had a chance yet, leave a comment and review for us. And you know what I took away from reading those comments? People love John D. Domenico, our voice of Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. The plane I saw on television was the hostage plane in Geneva, Switzerland, not the plane carrying 400 million in cash going to Iran.